Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting, as always, my name's Dan, I'm back from the outer edges of Kazakhstan, uh, and I'm joined again after a week off by Paul. Good evening. And Khan. Good evening. Are you both well, gents? Yeah, yeah, yes, very well. surviving, Dan. <laughs> yeah, very well, thanks. Yeah, um, well, certainly, I hope you both got petrol, um, before the weekend, um, that's been a hilarious thing. It's called called some Isthmian League games to be called off, I believe, wasn't it? I was reading yesterday. Yeah, quite um, a few non-league games are off. I've been out of the country, Dan, and I, I returned to all sorts of chaos of you know cars just been tailing back for half a mile outside every petrol station. I thought it was the end of the world. That's all right. If we could, only we could fuel coaches with kerosene. But uh, that, that <laughs> might, not, might not end too well with flying coaches. Um, if we can start on a serious note, um, s- since we last convened, uh, we've lost a couple of legends of the game. Um, Jimmy Greaves died last week, and uh, Roger Hunt, um, who was one of my dad's favourite players, uh, Liverpool's record goal scorer, um, 1966 uh, winner, um, has died today too. So um, it's kind of, we live in a world where... You can like track everyone's move. You can kind of like. I'm surprised there's not an app where you can track a footballer's movements when they go to a car door or whatever it is they choose to shop. It could be Aldi, I don't know, but um, it, it seems to be that um, we live in a world where everyone that we know is, is passing away because number one, with that age, and number two, that news is so much easily more reported. Yeah, and um, we're both of them, obviously, both members of the, the 1966 World Cup squad, in fact, um, started that tournament, Hunt and Greaves, as, as England's first choice front two. Um, we all know, obviously, what happened when when Jimmy Greaves got injured and Jeff Hurst came in. Um, but as you say, both at kind of that age uh, now, uh, where, uh, sadly, it does get to, it does come to us all in the end. Um, I, I think... I was actually slightly surprised when Jimmy Greaves died last week. I, I presumed he was a little bit older. And I don't know if that's because he already seemed to me as a, a young kid who just about remembers Saint and Greavesy in its like final season or so before it went off TV. Um, I already thought of Jimmy Greaves, the, t- the football pundit, as quite an old man. Now, that was probably just my perspective on it as a, as a youngster. But that's kind of 30 years ago. And so I'd, I'd have probably had him thought he'd you know, be later into his 80s, I suppose. Um, but he was a, a phenomenal goal scorer. And as you've already alluded to, Dan Roger Hunt as well at, at Liverpool was pretty much a goal-scoring machine and was, was there for many, many years. So, um, yeah, very sad to hear the news of, of both of their passing. And slowly but surely, that 1966 squad, there's, there's not many of them left now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've had a... It seems to be a... <laughs> Unfortunately, a regular occurrence on these podcasts in the last year or so, you know, we've we've lamented the loss of a few other, um, you know, members of that team as well. And, you know, as you say, unfortunately, they're, they're sort of getting to that age now um, where it does come around to everyone. But I think, you know, it was great to see, you know, obviously, I'm sure there'll be the, the appropriate respects paid um, at the next round of fixtures for, for Roger Hunt. Um, but, you know, on, on the day that... Uh, that Greaves, he, you know, was passed away that morning. His All his uh, former clubs were sort of playing each other or in action that afternoon. It almost felt, felt sort of fitting in a way um, that they were at least able to sort of give him the, 
the sort of send off and, and sort of tribute that a player like that deserves. I mean, his you know his goal scoring well, both their goal scoring records were were ridiculous. But I think you know Greaves is in in particular. Um, you know, gets mentioned a lot his goal to game ratio. You know, not just at club level, but at, at you know in an England shirt as well. I know he hasn't scored the most goals for England, but his goal to games ratio I think is, is sort of comfortably the best. Um, you know, not a player I was able to see a lot of. You know, in, in in action, you sort of you know you know them by reputation, but you know in in some cases the numbers sort of speak for themselves. And I think uh, you know he, tributes were coming from all, all over the world of football for Greaves, and I'm sure they will as well for. Uh, and are doing for for Roger Hunt as well. I think Greaves is still. I mean, you're right, Con. Obviously, he's not England's top scorer, but I think he's still fourth on the all-time list. I think it's yeah. Um, it's obviously Rooney's now the number one, and then I think it's Charlton and Lineker, and then I think Greaves has got forties. I think maybe forty-three, forty-four goals for England. It's so you know, I think yeah, yeah. That that's still an incredible uh, haul, isn't it? Really, uh, and as I say. He will be remembered as being the guy who was unlucky to miss out on the World Cup final, but but still a very fine player and a, a good goal scorer for club and country. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I believe it was it was again perhaps one of those spooky things that happens. But you know, Roger Hunt's name was mentioned uh, over the weekend because didn't Salah sort of beat his uh, first hundreds hundred goals record or something? It's just quite weird how these things sort of. Uh, Dan, you you can keep me honest on this one, but was that is that right? Yeah, he was the fastest. Salah's the fastest Liverpool player to 100 goals. That's right. I'm I'm sure England can line up um, Moldova or um, Andorra or someone like that. So Harry came to start smashing that record um, for for England. To, to well, say. he better he better start scoring for somebody, Dan. <laughs> I mean, I think obviously he has scored for Spurs this season, hasn't he? And he he did score for England in Poland. But I think, uh, and we'll, we'll come on to talk about the North London derby in a bit. But I think people have have commented that that England game in Poland there was a bit more energy and and effort seemingly from Harry Kane than there's been in some of his Spurs games. I'm sure he'll get very close to that record because he's you know he's already got a, a fair number of goals for England. Yeah, uh, it's it's not much of a secret that Harry Kane is Mister England and um, is, is is England's Harry Kane instead of instead of Tottenham's. And, uh, I, I, I think, think he's, he's all, just checking now. He's already on forty-one. I mean, it seems just a matter of time, doesn't it, before he gets the record? As long as he finishes above Wayne Rooney, I'll be completely happy with that. <laughs> um, we, we might as well stick with with, with Spurs and, and North London derby then. Um, really. When I was growing up, it was always Arsenal who would win. You might get the occasional Spurs um, victory at White Hart Lane, perhaps a a goal from Darren Anderton. Um, And then, even beyond that, when I was growing up, it was always Arsenal will beat Spurs. And then for the last five or six years, it's been the other way around, where I fully expect Harry Kane to fill his boots, uh, particularly at White Hart Lane or whichever equivalent Tottenham were playing in. And we we suddenly seem to be swinging back the other way now. You you must be really pleased, Paul. I thought Arsenal were excellent. Tottenham were very poor, but that's Arsenal can only beat what's in front of them, and they they did that with with consummities. Yeah, the, the, it was the best Arsenal have played this season without without a doubt, which isn't probably the highest bar in the world, but it was a pleasing performance. I mean, Spurs' record at the Emirates is still not good. I think there's there's that one year when they beat us three two, having been two 0 down. Um, I think Gareth Bale scored a couple of goals, so that tells you how long ago that is. Um, 
but their record generally at, at the Emirates is, is not great. I mean, people will probably hark back to, there's been a lot of conversation, hasn't there, about is this the turning point for Arsenal? Have they turned the corner? And I think a lot of Arsenal fans have sort of reflected on, on beating Spurs 4-2 at, at the Emirates in Unai Emery's one full season in charge. And it was when we were on that really good unbeaten run under Emery. And it was like, this is it, Arsenal are back. And, and was maybe a bit of a false dawn. And, and there'll be people who, you know, remain unconvinced, and rightly so, after the, the game on Sunday. But I, I think just looking at that as an individual performance, the best Arsenal have played in some time. I think it, it's worth saying because Mikel Arteta had prayed the injuries excuse. Um, that probably is the team that if you'd asked him before the first game to write his, his best 11 down on paper would probably have been the team. I know a couple of those players weren't at the club at that point, but but by and large, that is the first 11 I think he had in his head. Um, it's the first time this season he's had them all fit and, and available for selection at the same time. So... It, it, from that regard, he, he may well feel vindicated that when he was saying earlier in the season when the results were really poor and the performances were poor, you need to bear with us because I'm missing two centre-halves and two central midfield players and Aubameyang and Lacazette missed time, didn't they, with COVID? Um, that maybe he had a little bit of a point. But I think for Arsenal, the key now is that they build on that result. Um, I think they're at Brighton at the weekend. And they, they're three on the bounce now in the Premier League and they need to maintain that momentum. I think everyone knows they had a tough start, not only with the circumstances around injuries and whatever else, but just the fixtures that they played early on. Um, but I really like the energy behind Aubameyang from Saka and Odegaard and, and Smith-Rowe. And I think you look at that trio there and, you know, 21, I think, 23 and 20, or, or maybe Saka's even still 19. Um and you look at that as a kind of core to play in those three creative roles behind the centre forward and think there's potentially some long-term hope really from, from that group, uh, which there hasn't maybe been enough of in, in recent years. But I, I personally think the difference for Arsenal has been Thomas Partey getting fit and getting back in the team. I'm still worried about, and, and to a lesser extent, Gabriel, who I do think is our best centre-half, but, I think Partey's the only player we've really got in the centre midfield um, in that two in front of the defence who is of the necessary quality to make a difference in the big games in the Premier League and even in, in normal games in the Premier League. Um, you know, we've we've done the Xhaka conversation to death. Lukonga, who they bought in the summer, still looks very, very raw to me. So I think getting Partey back fit has been massive for Arsenal. Um, and he was important on the in the win on Sunday, as as were with that triumvirate be, behind the striker, um, and as was Aubameyang himself, who probably put in one of his more energetic performances of the last twelve months. I think at this stage of his career, Aubameyang is a centre forward and nothing else. If you think about him, when Arsenal won the FA Cup a couple of years ago, he played kind of from the left wing, and they used that pace on those sort of inside channels. I think at this stage probably hasn't got the legs to do that. He has to play up front. Um, but also, as you alluded to at the start, Dan Tottenham were absolutely atrocious. I mean, the first first half was as bad a Spurs performance as you'll see. I'm not sure how much of it was tactical, how much of it was uh, Nuno had sort of anticipated Arsenal playing the high press and was trying to be direct and play over the top. Um, 
I don't think that's Tottenham's game. I don't think they've got the players to be a long ball team. Um, when you're playing Lucas Moura and Son as two of your front three, I don't think there's a lot of merit in, in smashing the ball 40 yards up in the air. Um, but also, they just look so off it. I mean, you look at the tracking back for the first Arsenal goal. And Don Bailey. Uh, well, I mean, he, he's not cared since he signed for Spurs, has he? And and, and Dumbele, however you say it. Um he and Dombele, I think that's the right pronunciation, isn't it? He's since he signed for Tottenham, he's been really, really disappointing. Doesn't look bothered, doesn't try for me. Talented player when he gets on the ball, but walks a lot. And for a central midfielder, that's a complete no no. Um, yeah, I, I just thought Tottenham were really, really disappointing. And the body language of Harry Kane continues to be poor. I don't think they've got a centre-half pairing worth, worth its salt. You know, they sign Romero. He can't quite get inside at the moment. Davison Sanchez has his moments. Eric Dyer doesn't have any moments. Um, <laughs> you, you not know, good it, ones. <laughs> not good ones, no. It, I, like, as much as I want to say, yeah, that was a great performance by Arsenal, and this is it, we're going to kick on now. And there is some, some positivity there. Um I have to say that I think some of what you saw on Sunday was just a Tottenham team that was nowhere near the races. And I would actually be worried if I was a Spurs fan because that, that was a performance with nothing, you know, nothing good about it whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's, it's really strange, isn't it, how you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, Paul, I think it was on one of the, the recordings we did with, with just the two of us, we sort of did that international break, you know, who's had a who's had a good start, who's had a bad start. And, you know, Tottenham were top of the league with three from three mm. and Arsenal were rooted at the bottom. And then since then, yeah. Arsenal have won. Then, you, you know, you were, you know, you, you were sort of said very clearly that, you know, what th- those, for those next three games and, you yeah, know, yeah. what one nils, wasn't it? Burnley and Norwich, you know, just sort of yeah. just get the points in the bag. And then you said the derby's going to be a big one. And obviously you've passed that test with flying colours. Um, whereas yeah, Spurs I, have I, just gone. I the... think I said on that, on that podcast, gone. I thought Arteta needed at least two wins from the three games, and ideally yeah. at least seven points. Um, and obviously, he's got nine, and and the kind of pressure lifts a little bit. But yeah. the sort of club Arsenal is, it'll only take another couple of defeats to go the other way. Well, exactly, yeah. But it's just interesting how badly Spurs have faded since then. Almost, it's almost been a complete yo-yo, um, and. Uh, you know, and, and shipping goals left, right, and centre. I mean, I think it's nine goals. They've lost three Premier League games and they've conceded three goals in each of them, um, which is worrying as well. And like I say, they've, you know, Son seems to be about the only positive thing about their forward play because um, Kane just, yeah, like I mean, you mentioned body language. I mean, yeah, just doesn't really, doesn't seem interested, not at the races um, at all. Um, and. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like we talk, I know you mentioned before the, the show, Dan, about, uh, you know, is is a sort of pressure on, on Nuno. But I was, in a way, like, he must have one of the safest jobs in uh, in the Premier League because he, he knows that there isn't anyone else out there that wants the Spurs job. Um, <laughs> so, he, I mean, I think realistically, obviously, it's very early into his tenure and, you know, equally, they did have, they did have a good start as much of a, a false dawn as it might have been. Um but uh, yeah, it does seem like it'll be a bit of a long season for Spurs, and you know they need to resolve the Kane situation one way or another. Um, and Sharpish, you know, whether that's to get him out of the team for a bit or whatever, or just get him scoring, or I, I don't know what. Um, you know, that we, we were mentioned at the, the the first fixture when he wasn't available for 
depending on which reason you want to believe. And Spurs actually look quite good going forward with a slightly different rejigged front line against City. Um, you know, is it? You know, it might be controversial. You know, dropping him after keeping him, but uh, they need to do something because it isn't whatever they're doing at the moment. They can't keep losing three 0 every week. Um, I so. mean, it's it's a high risk strategy for Nuno to leave Kane out of the team. It would be massively high risk. I, you know, my mind immediately goes back to Rutoli leaving out Alan Shearer. And three days later, he didn't have a job anymore. Um, you know, now <laughs> Harry Kane doesn't quite have the godlike status that Shearer had at Newcastle, but it's not a million miles away, um, even after the shenanigans in the summer. Uh, but I kind of feel like it almost needs that. It almost needs him to take a big call and say, at the moment, Harry, you are not helping the team, and therefore I'm not going to pick you in it. Um, and it can go one or two ways. That can completely blow the whole thing up. And Nuno will be out of a job, you know, within two or three months of the season starting. Or it may just have that impact, as you said, on the opening day against Man City, where it looked like it galvanised the rest of the team. Uh, and they put in what is their only really good performance of the, of the season at this point. So I, I think it's coming to the point where he needs to consider leaving Harry Kane out. And I, I haven't looked to see who Spurs play next. They've obviously, again... They've had a tricky run of fixtures in terms of you play Chelsea and then you play Arsenal. But they lost 3-0 at Crystal Palace as well. Uh, so at the moment, it's less about who they play and about the way that Spurs are playing themselves. I think, I mean, if we kind of like one of the other topics we had lined up and I didn't come, come on to that nicely now, the the, the 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 top four, which is kind of seen as everyone's de facto top four in there, um, bit of a, a mixed bag. Only Man City won. Uh, obviously, neither them. It was either them or Chelsea who were going to have a result of some kind. Uh, Liverpool only drew much to my blood pressure's dismay at Brentford, and uh, Manchester United lost. So, is the top four as secure as we thought? Is it just a a blip? Is it just um? a natural order forming and things happening as football tends to throw up? Well, I, th- I think I, I, I'm not unchanged in the view that, that that top four will still be the top four at the end of the season. Um, I think, yeah, you could argue there's a couple of blips in there. You know, we've talked about, you know, Brentford being a, you know, a good side after the Arsenal win on the opening day and, um, you know, putting a, you know, I didn't see the game, unfortunately, but, you know, it obviously was a great game for for a neutral or, or a Brentford fan, perhaps, maybe not so much for a Liverpool fan. Um, but, uh, you know, it seems like they are going to get a few scalps this season, right? And whether it's sort of claiming a point or a win against some of the, the bigger names. So those, you know, those games do happen. Um, of course, you know, I'm sure you'll you'll come in down with your view, but uh, you know, Liverpool will point to some perhaps more basic errors and will will sort of rue it as uh, you know, two points lost. Um and then the Chelsea City one, um, you know, Chelsea have sort of had the the better of City um in recent meetings and you know, this is maybe uh you know, City kinda of coming back a little bit. Um so I did see a bit of that game and you know, I think think City looked pretty pretty good for the win, um, and needed it as well because they were a couple of points behind before then. So it was a good way to kind of get back on a on a level level pegging, um, and I think though you know those games are going to be 
you know, in terms of from a title race perspective, those games are going to be super, super crucial, aren't they, this season? The the games between those four are going to be pretty massive, I think. Because um, whilst I know there's some other teams who we'll mention in a minute who've had promising starts, um, you know, not not least your uh, your neighbours uh, over the park um, <laughs> in, in Everton, but, you know, Brighton and West Ham have had, had, had good starts as well, and we'll perhaps give them a bit of credit in a minute. Um, but uh, you know, realistically, I think that that top four is is a fairly closed shop, which I think means those those meetings um, are going to be yeah absolutely critical in terms of where the title ends up. I would have thought. Um, and I guess before perhaps hand over to Paul, I have to mention obviously the United game as well. Disappointing. I think that's three three losses now um, in four across all competitions in you know the the Champions League. Um, sort of farcical situation against young boys and then you know West Ham um, sort of paying us back for perhaps being a, a lucky win there in the league you could say and then coming back and beating us in, in the cup um, and then you know the game it sounded like I didn't I didn't see it it wasn't televised despite being a lunchtime kickoff I've only seen the highlights but I know a couple of people who were at the game both United and Villa fans who, who said it was a, actually a for the most of the game, it was a nil-nil. Apparently, it was a really good game, and you know, could have been sort of two all or even three all. You know, both sides had had plenty of chances. Um, but yeah, you have to sort of look at that. It doesn't it doesn't look good. Um, you know, losing three and four, um, even if only one of them's in the league, it, it's still worrying. We'll see how we get on um, tomorrow night in the Champions League. Hopefully, we can kickstart there. But yeah, it's a little bit worrying that it seems to be the same sort of themes coming up. Um, that even though the team on paper gets better, <laughs> the football being played doesn't, and we keep sort of falling into the same traps and still seem to, you know, struggle to break teams down. It seems teams keep catching us on the counter. It's just you know basic things that you think should be should be sorted now. And with with the playing staff we've recruited, you know, there's not many excuses. Um, so I think it's it's again we're kind of coming into that kind of crunch autumn time now, um, and we have a you know, as you mentioned the other day, Paul, it, it is a tough run we have coming up in the league. Um, so this could be a bit of a October, November could well be make or break because we pre- we play sort of one of the top six, eight teams now, basically almost every week between now and the end of November. And then December and January, we sort of play everyone else. That's just how the fixtures have fallen. Um, but if, if, you know, we, we haven't played so well in those uh, those big games of the last season or two, our record is not great, and if if that continues, then it you know by that sort of uh, autumn international break, it could be looking a bit dicey. So we'll have to see. But um, anyway, I've I've natted on for too long, so I'll, I'll let one of you guys jump yeah, in. Yeah, I I think I think just to pick up on the Manchester United point, Gary Neville said it a couple of times on Sky, and I think I agree with him that you know they haven't been playing well enough, and when you're not playing well enough, eventually that shows in the results. You know, slightly fortunate win at West Ham. We go back to earlier in the season when they were maybe slightly fortunate at, at Southampton. Um, you know, that even the the home game against Newcastle, there were 10 minutes when Newcastle got back to one all where it was dicey. And, and I think this theme of Manchester United struggling at Old Trafford to put kind of mid-table teams, and I don't mean that with any disrespect to Villa because I think Villa are a decent side, but struggling to put mid-table teams away has become a theme over the last two or three years, uh, probably even predating Ole, to be honest, and going back as far as Mourinho. Uh, and they've just not been able to quite to 
to quite fix it. And England, in terms of the others, I didn't see the Manchester City-Chelsea uh, game. I was on an aeroplane back, back to uh, the UK at the time. But having seen the highlights, it looks like Manchester City put in a really commanding performance. They obviously needed that as well, not only to the league position, which you've already alluded to, but there was a, a feeling, I think, that Tuchel had maybe got Guardiola's number a little bit, having beaten them in the Champions League final, beaten them at, at the Etihad last year, beaten them in the FA Cup semi. I think Chelsea sort of need, uh, City really needed that kind of victory against Chelsea to to remind themselves of, of their sort of status as the, the preeminent club in the Premier League. Um, I think it was a, a really good win by Man City. I, I, when I think about some of the the big Guardiola wins in his tenure at City in that first title year, I think they went to Chelsea that year and won 1-0 and De Bruyne scored an absolute screamer. And that was the game for me where I really thought, OK, Manchester City cannot just play the scintillating football and beat the rubbish in the league, but they can go away from home and be really resolute against good sides. Um, you think last year when their, their season wasn't going great and then they had that amazing hot first half performance at, at, at Stamford Bridge around Christmas time and it just kicked them into gear. You get the kind of feeling that, that this weekend could be another one of those days for City where, again, a little bit needing it, a little bit needing the result. They go and put a really good performance in. Um, so they'll be delighted with that, and it puts them right squarely in the race. Uh, Liverpool and Brentford was a terrific game of football. I do have some concerns about Liverpool's defending. I think, you know, they have been better with Van Dijk back in there, but I think there are some... Again, you're talking about themes for Manchester United... There are some themes with Liverpool about teams exposing the space behind Alexander-Arnold um, that's become more than just a once-in-a-blue-moon thing now. And, you know, Alexander-Arnold's a terrific player. He has lots of merits um, as a footballer and particularly going forward. Um, but but drawing him forward and then hitting him behind him has definitely become a, a theme that, that you've seen in games against Liverpool over the last 12 months. Um, I, you know, I know Dan's a big fan of Matip. I always think there's a mistake in him, and I didn't think he had a great game at, at the weekend. And I think my nervousness about Liverpool is they've just given away too many chances for me. And I think even in some of the games this year that they've won, they've not quite looked like the same resolute Liverpool side that doesn't give anything away that they did a couple of years ago when they won the Premier League. That said, Brentford are a really good team. Um, I thought that when we lost there on the opening day, I don't think Brentford are going to be anywhere near the relegation scrap. I think they've got too many good players. They've got a good way of playing. They all know their jobs. They work exceptionally hard. The fans are great there and get right behind them. I think they're going to have a solid first year up. And and I don't think there's any disgrace necessarily in drawing there. Um, but Liverpool will be frustrated, particularly having been 3-2 up and looking as though they'd come out of what was a really difficult game with the points and then you know, conceding whatever it was, seven or eight minutes from the end. They'll be disappointed. Um, it never felt like they could quite establish that control of the game, even when they were in the lead in it. You never felt like, OK, this game's done. You always felt there's another goal in this. And it was either going to be Liverpool winning scoring in the fourth, which they had chances to do, or it was going to be Brentford getting the equaliser. Um, so I, I think in terms of all four clubs, 
interesting games this weekend. My overriding feeling is still that that top four will be the top four. I do think it's worth watching, though, with Manchester United. Um, because, uh, as you've said, Con, I think their, their run now is like, I think they play Everton and Leicester in the next two. Um, and then it's Liverpool, Tottenham, Manchester City, Watford, Chelsea, Arsenal. So, you know, Watford is really that one game in there that's a little bit of respite. Um, but it's pretty full on other than that in the next month and a half or so. Uh, and if United come out of that period not having got great results and find themselves sixth, seventh, eighth place, then I think you will start talking about, OK, who are the other teams who can make a challenge for that for that final Champions League spot? Because I'm pretty sure in some order, Manchester City, Chelsea and Liverpool will be in there. I would still say Manchester United, but let's let's talk about that again in six weeks' time. I find it very hard to disagree with anything you've said there. I do think we've rode our luck a little bit this season defensively. Um, Crystal Palace, who you um, kind of talked about when I was on my way back from not Kazakhstan, um, they, they played really well. and they, they hit the post twice in the first five minutes at Anfield a few weeks ago. Uh, and I think we've, we've creaked a little bit more, but I think it was just one of those days where defensively we were a mess. And Mo Salah missed two enormous chances. Yota missed an enormous chance. Um, you know, like we, we we had enough chances to win that game. So kind of, for me, I'm not going to worry about it too much. I think the next game, which is Manchester City at Anfield, will be a, a bigger test of where we are and what where we're... Um, where City are really come come this international break because obviously we have a, another break to go and spread COVID. Sorry to go and play um, international games um, in October. So th- th- for me, I- I'll kind of be worried or not worried by about six o'clock on on Sunday. But what I will say to you, Paul, is that um, Trent Alexander-Arnold's not fully fit. Uh, he's not playing tonight. He's a doubt for that game as well. Um, James Milner plays right back against Porto. I suspect Joe Gomez will play against Manchester City. Yeah, I think it's it's less of a Trent thing so much as it's a it's a Liverpool system involves the fullbacks getting really high up the pitch. I don't think necessarily it's a it's a problem with Trent specifically. Although I think we all know. You know, Trent Alexander-Arnold is a, an average defender who's a brilliant attacker. And, and as a modern fullback, that's kind of what most of them are, right? You know, there aren't many fullbacks you look at in world football today and you go, he's a phenomenal defender, doesn't give you much going forward. Those kind of guys, the Gary Nevilles, if you want to call them that, they've gone out of the game. You know, you'll remember it time, Dan, when Liverpool played Jamie Carragher as a fullback, That had never happened today. It just wouldn't because the way fullbacks are used is different. Um, and, and, and as I say, I think it's less of a of a, of a trend issue or more of a, of a shape issue. And I just think teams have not worked Liverpool out, but Liverpool have had a very settled system of play and, and tee, you know, first 11 for four or five seasons now. And I think it's inevitable, right, that teams start to find different ways of exposing weaknesses in that system because no system in football is perfect. There's no shape, there's no formation, there's no combination that's impenetrable. And I just think it's, it's you know, once 
once a team cottons on, once teams cotton on to a certain thing, they do tend to kind of go at it. I, I remember when, at sort of at the end of the kind of glory period of of, of Wenger, you know, when we stopped winning titles and we'd sold Ashley Cole and Gail Clichy became our first choice left back. For a year, everyone was going, well, no one misses Ashley Cole, he's great. And then I remember us playing Aston Villa at, at the Emirates, and maybe the first year the Emirates was open, and, and they really exposed Clichy in the air at the back post. They get the ball down the right-hand side, uh, down the left-hand side, whip it across, and and get a tall player against Clichy at the back post and, and, and murder him, frankly, in that way. And as soon as teams had seen Villa do it, it was like, ah, that was every week then. Everyone had the same strategy. Teams were playing strikers wide right, you know, with a bit of height because they knew they'd got an advantage against Clichy in the air. And I, I think it's just one of them things that when teams have worked out a little bit of a ploy, um, that they're going to try and, and, and work it. it. It's why, personally, I prefer Gomez with Van Dijk because I think Gomez is more comfortable going out and covering that space if he needs to. As somebody who has played fullback in the past, I think he's a little bit more comfortable if he gets dragged into a fullback area. Um, but, I mean, that's just my take on it. But I, I, I think that's a, it's, it bears watching. And, and as I say, it was a brilliant game of football. It's easy to kind of sort of nitpick at, you know, as you've said, Dan Liverpool missed chances and some of their defending wasn't great, blah, blah, blah. But if you're sitting down with your, your fish and chips on a Saturday afternoon as a as a neutral and you're sticking that on the tally, you, you couldn't have a lot to complain about. Yeah, yeah. Um, apart from Better Liverpool's... than watching Strictly, anyway. <laughs> apart from Liverpool's inability to, to deal with a back post overload, uh, no, I didn't have much to complain about. But yeah, you, you know what, yeah. It was um, a great game of football. And something that you won't hear me say very often, Paul, can you will verify this for play to Brentford? Um, <laughs> they completely they, they brought it and yeah I like it when teams bring it because it makes it a lot more interesting but I will say Paul is one manager who is perfect who we've not <laughs> mentioned on this podcast before is Graham Wesley <laughs> yeah I don't think I don't think there's much call for Graham Wesley references not 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 in 2021 there isn't but I think Preston fans will tell you there was not much call for it in the mid mid-2010s when he was managing them. Uh, if we quickly move away from Graham Weston then to another manager with some strange motivational techniques, um, I think I, I want to just just say off the bat, uh, I'm a big Brendan Rodgers fan, but Leicester have had a poor start and they're the de facto choice for break the top four and they've only they've missed out on the top four in the last day in the last two seasons. But you've got Everton and West Ham sniffing if Leicester don't shape, shape themselves they're going to be sixth, seventh. If that yeah, I, I think it's interesting, Dan, because there's all it's almost gone under the radar that Leicester have had a slow start. And I know that they're not one of the, the big six. And when I say the big six, I don't necessarily mean the best six or the top six. But we know who we mean when we say the big six clubs. While I understand they get less scrutiny because they're Leicester, at the same time, pretty much everyone you saw got Leicester pegged as fourth, fifth or sixth in their predictions at the start of the season. All the experts were saying if, if one of the big four messes up, Leicester are best place to capitalise and get in the top four. Understandably, as you've said, they've only missed out on the final day twice in a row. They won the FA Cup last season. They've got a good squad of players. Um, but I think it does bear bear watching that they just look a bit stale to me at the moment. 
and you know we're slightly fortunate to get away with a draw from from the game against Burnley at the weekend. Burnley scored in injury time, had it ruled out, had been ahead earlier in the game. Um, there's something not quite right at Leicester. They're missing Wesley Fofana massively, I think, at centre-half. Him being out for, and I, th- I don't know if he's going to miss the entire season, but he's certainly going to miss most of it. Him being out for a prolonged period for Leicester is almost as big as Virgil van Dijk missing the season last year for Liverpool. He's that important to them. Um, and had such a good first season there. Uh, and I don't know, I just look at them at the moment, they don't quite seem to have the same fears. They don't quite seem to have the same um, burst that they had. I wonder a little bit, actually, if... And I know that the, the first season they finished fifth, half of that season was played with fans, so maybe I'm I'm looking for excuses that aren't there, but I wonder a little bit if Leicester were one of the teams who managed to best adjust to not having fans in the stadium and continue to play with the same energy. And now that fans are back and the atmosphere is back and games have picked up in pace again, that little advantage that they maybe had where they've managed to maintain that and other clubs had struggled to, um, maybe that's gone a little bit and that's kind of brought them back down to earth slightly. I don't know. I might be completely over oversimplifying that, but um, there's definitely something not quite right there. Uh, Maybe, again, one or two players' heads were turned in the summer. We obviously know James Madison, who I think struggling at the moment to get a regular place in the team. He wanted to go to Arsenal. That didn't come off. Um, you know, it, it just feels like the makings of not a particularly happy camp. And, and they need to hit their straps quite quickly and get some results. Because you look at their fixtures. I know they play Manchester City. But it's not like Leicester have had a murderous row to start the season. They've had some pretty kind fixtures um, and yet they sit there, you know, rooted in mid-table with only a couple of wins to show for it and I just think, um, yeah, you'd be slightly concerned at the moment if you're a Leicester fan. It it feels a bit like, and maybe not quite as extreme, but a, a bit like how the conversation we had about Wolves a bit later into last season um, about things just sort of going a bit stale and a team that people had sort of expected to be sort of fairly reliable, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth place team. I know Leicester finished even higher than that, finishing fifth two seasons in a row, but a team in that bracket that even though on paper they still had a good good team and so on, just seemed to sort of fall away and didn't quite happen. And ultimately in the end, they've, you know, they've, they've obviously changed manager at the end of the season and all that, but... And I'm not saying that'll necessarily happen or that, or that Brendan's time's up or that he should move on or anything like that at, at Leicester just yet. But it does feel like, you know, has it sort of just gone a little bit stale and maybe some players not as motivated as they were for whether it's reasons to do with other interest or, or whatever. But it, it just it just feels, you know, the way you're just speaking then, Paul, it does feel like quite similar to some of the things we spoke about in relation to Wolves last season. But equally, it is, you know, still fairly early and... You know, there is time to turn it around at this time of the season, a win or two and all, well, as you've seen with Arsenal, a win or two and, you know, um, it can change the, the picture quite quickly. But yeah, equally, it does feel like they've had a bit of a, a sleepwalking start to the season and yeah, they've not had many really tough games on paper and games that you would expect them to have had a few more points from really, given the talent in the squad. Um, so I think they're definitely one to watch over the next few rounds of fixtures and see if that form picks up or not. That covers um, covers Leicester's plight nicely, um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. 
um, they are badly missing Wesley Fofana. I think it's pretty obvious. And um, and just just to pay tribute again to, to Jamie Vardy, who's not getting any younger, but um, Steptoe keeps on banging the goals in at the wrong end as well this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he managed to score two this weekend, but not necessarily both in the right goal. Um, yeah, I, I mean, at, Vardy is so important to them. And again, he can't. He can't just be evergreen forever, right? At some point, Jamie Vardy will slow down. Um, now, I know they, they brought the forward in in the summer. Dan, remind me of the guy's name who you're a fan oh, of. Uh, Patson Dacker. That's it. And he's he's not really kind of got much of a look in at this stage. Um, again, it's difficult to introduce somebody new when the team isn't playing great. I think if Leicester were winning games, you know, and it had the start they had the last couple of years, you might see him get a bit more time in the team. It's a bit difficult when you when you're not quite playing well. You maybe revert more to the tried and trusted a little bit. Uh, in terms of the others who are going to compete, I mean Everton, on paper, have had another really good start. But then again, you, you look at the list of people Everton have played, and you think, well, they should have had a good start. If Rafa Benitez had been asked to hand pick a kind of opening six games as as Everton manager. I don't think he could have picked much better than than what they've had, really. Apart uh, from Aston Villa away, where they got absolutely smashed up and it, down second half. Exactly. You'd maybe say Villa are arguably the best team they've played. I know they've played Brighton as well, who've had a decent start. But talent-wise, Villa are probably the best team they've played and, and really, really took them to the cleaners. Um, I think, in fairness to Rafa, he didn't get a lot of money to spend. And he identified that one of the problems at Everton, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, um, over the last few years has been the more all wanting to play number 10 and nobody who plays wide. And the little, you know, little bit of resource he has been given, he's, he's gone and brought Andros Townsend in, he's had a great start for them, he's brought Damari Gray in. Now, no one's going to confuse those two with world-class players, um, but they've just balanced the team up a little bit. And, and suddenly you've not got four players all trying to play in the number 10 position. Um, and, the, and they look better for it. Uh, so I think you've got to give Rafa some credit. But equally, the fixtures have been very kind. Everton, a bit like Manchester United, have, are about to hit a tougher run. Let's see where Everton stand um, at the end of November uh, when they've played a few of those those tougher games and, and starting this week against United. Um let, let's see where they, they stand then. Uh, I think West Ham are probably more legitimate than Everton. Um, I think West Ham are a really good football team. Don't think it was a fluke last season at all. Now, um, they maybe don't have the biggest squad in the world and the depth will get tested with them, with them being in Europe. Um, but I think Everton are, uh, are probably behind West Ham in terms of my pecking order of of who could make a charge. And then we've already talked about the two North London clubs and, and the sort of inconsistencies both of those have. But with both Arsenal and Tottenham, you know that there is enough quality in those squads that if they can put a run of seven, eight games together and build a bit of confidence, they can get themselves into that mix for those kind of next best of the rest type placings as well. And then if Manchester United or one of the other you know, expected top four does stumble. Maybe they can have a little stab at a top four place. But I would say at this moment in time, I think the team most likely, if those above them stutter, is probably West Ham, as long as they, they can kind of keep people fit with the with the added games in Europe. Yeah, I think with, with West Ham, it's just that 
they they do have a really good first eleven, right? But it's just that the the depth question, and particularly with the added European games. Um, of course, David Moyes is famous for navigating victories throughout Europe, so I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll go deep into the competition. Um, but the winner uh, can win all round the continent. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, but yeah, equally. But yeah, they're certainly uh, one of the one of the better sides to watch as well in that. Um, you know, in that group, they you know to to give him to give Moyes some credit, he's actually crafted a you know a, a, a decent team there to to watch as well. They're, they're quite entertaining, um, even when even when they're beating United. But anyway. I, I I did um the Liverpool Wear podcast this weekend talking about the, the Brentford game and someone described um David Myers as the most miserable successful man in the world. <laughs> yeah, although in fairness, Dan, I, I think he'd probably rather be a miserable successful man than be the miserable bloke who got Sunderland relegated because <laughs> then he really did have something to be miserable about. Well, well, well my my point was that Ole Solskjaer is the the most miserable, least successful manager. <laughs> so um, th- th- there is that balance, and that we're we're, we're balanced on this podcast. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Anything else caught you eye this weekend? I uh, I see it looks like Nottingham Forest have made the right decision uh, getting Chris Hooten out the door because they, they've picked up a lot since um, since, since he went by the looks of it to me anyway. Yeah, well, they've, they've got a win on the board now, which was badly needed. I think when you look at that bottom end of the championship, everyone knows what the situation is with Derby, um, with their point deduction for going into administration. You hope that the situation can resolve itself quickly. Wayne Rooney's saying he's going to stick it out, but I, I wonder, frankly, um, whether he really is, if, if it gets very, very grim. Um, I think the appointment Forrest have made is a good appointment. Steve, you know, Steve Cooper did a really good job at Swansea for a couple of years. Uh, the Swansea fans maybe didn't ever fall in love with his style of play, but Forrest probably can't. Can't be too picky about style points at this at this stage, right? When they, you know, they they've gone the first seven or eight games without a win. Um, I think you look at that top end of the championship: uh, Bournemouth, West Brom, Fulham. You know, they're in the in three of the top four places. Not a huge amount there to be surprised about. They are all clubs who've been in the Premier League very recently. Um, I do think it's worth commenting on the job Scott Parker's done since he, he went in at Bournemouth. I think they look a really good side. I thought they probably should have come up last year. Um, and without wishing to be harsh on, on the two guys who had spells as manager last season, I think Scott Parker is an upgrade in terms of his experience and, and knowledge and, and proven track record at the level. So I expect Bournemouth... This might be one of the seasons that you get occasionally in the Championship where a team really runs away with it. I think they look really, really solid. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if Bournemouth really crack on now. And by Christmas time, we're looking at a little bit of a gap between them and the rest. Right, well, um, it's been a a nice sojourn around um, the leagues, as always. Um, Champions League action tonight, it's a... the Kashiko game, as it's being called, between um, Man-, Man City and PSG. It should be a, a, a good one. Uh, I hope Liverpool match the recent results in Porto. I think I think it's been 5-0 and 2-0 last couple of visits. I think we've, we've run right there a couple of times. So that would be nice again. And, um, and it's Man United and Villarreal tomorrow, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. I'm 
I'm pretty sure that one won't be going to penalties. Well, I was going to say last time it finished after midnight, didn't it? When those two <laughs> <laughs> De Gea has been practicing his penalties. He's learned how to save them now. Um, yeah. I've uh, I've got early meetings on Thursday, so I really hope it doesn't <laughs> go that late. Uh, well, there's pl- plenty of other games as well you could choose instead. To be fair, Paul, but uh, yeah, no, I'll be I'll be tuning in, glutton for punishment and all that. <laughs> Right, well, uh, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Remember, you can catch uh, the Big Football Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, and unbeknownst to me, Google Podcasts. Uh, I didn't know I'd even signed up for it, but obviously I have, and we are available there should you so wish to catch us on that particular network. So have a have a great week, everyone, and we'll, we'll catch you again next week. Although we'll have to review that, actually, because it's... The internationals next week, isn't it? We'll have to see whether or not we've got anything because we don't want to be uh, talking about England against the Vatican. Well, there's there's one more round of fixtures, and there, there's a round of fixtures this weekend. Oh, sorry, you're quite right. Yeah, we'll, we'll have some, uh, we'll have some and then review, the international yeah. break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 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 that looking forward to England's next opponents who I don't know. <laughs> you just can't wait, can you, Dan? <laughs> I, I just can't wait that much. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm looking beyond Liverpool against Manchester City. Yeah. Uh, there you go <laughs> right thank you very much gents and we'll catch you all after a while